is that's a great time to hang out with each other. It is good to see you, Sandy, and uh, that's who I was talking with. It's good to see all of you, and I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our series that we started just last week on uh, the remnant, the faithful remnant in the church. So we've been kind of just looked at, we looked at how the world has gone recently and what the church is looking like, particularly in the United States, our, our dwindling numbers, our divided nature, how we're kind of coming apart at the seams. And it's easy to look from the outside and look in and say, oh, it's, it's done. Stick a fork in the church. It's done. Um, but I don't really believe that that's true because if we look at the church through all generations, through all nations, all the way back to the first century church, and even before that, the people of God in Israel, God has always rescued and saved a remnant, a small body of people to, to the faithful few to rebuild the church from. And so it's, it's, a, it's a time, though, it's great pressure, a time of great pain, a time of of uh, disillusionment, of suffering, of questioning. It's a difficult time for many people, uh, both within the church and without of the church. And so as we go through this time, the kind of the question of this series is what kind of remnant are we going to be? I mean, are we going to be just the remnant of people that happen to survive, that are religious, that go to church? Or are we going to become the faithful remnant, the people of God, the ordinary, everyday people of extraordinary devotion, the people who stick with God through thick and thin, who, who fall in love again with God, who become deeper and fuller in their faith and in their souls. Their souls expand rather than contract or become smaller. And this group of people, this faithful remnant, is not so much a gifted people, but people who are proficient. That word proficient is interesting. It really means practiced. You're practiced at being a follower of Jesus. You stick with it through thick and thin. You, you try, you, you fail, you, you get up again, you, you work on your disciplines. That's, that's what we're after is to be a faithful remnant. And it's not easy in our current day and age to be a faithful remnant, right? Because the current of our, of our culture is completely against the life that we are called to. It is so much easier to give up. It's so much easier just to not come to church, right? It's so much easier to not be in, in relationship with people who are extremely different from you. It is so much easier to just to, to throw in the towel and to stop reading the Bible, to stop doing the things that build your faith, to stop growing, and just to go on with life as it is and to pretend that what we know to be true about God is not true. It's a fairy tale. And just follow along with the culture. It's so much easy, easier. Our, our human tendency is to take the easy path of unfaithfulness. But God is inviting us to be faithful. Faithful, faithful, faithful. We had a, Heidi and I had a boss that used to tell us, he said, he said this, is the, this is the pastor's life. Faithful, 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 fruitful. Faithful, 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 fruitful. We get focused on fruit and it's success and alive and it's huge and it's amazing. We get focused on that. But most of the life of a pastor is just faithful. And I've come to actually believe that that is really all of the life of a pastor, and it's really all of the life of any follower of Jesus. Fruitful is God's work. Faithful is our part. So be faithful, 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 faithful. And be faithful, faithful, faithful again. Stay with it. Hold on, even though it's hard. And here's the thing about being the faithful remnant. Anybody and everybody can do it, but most people won't because it's difficult, but some will, 
Some will. That is the good news. There will always be some that will. And I want to invite you to be the somebody. Be the somebody who will. That's the whole point of this series. And so what we're doing is kind of we're looking at messages in the scripture that were spoken to the remnant of God's people. Uh, we're going to be hopping around a little bit. We're looking at Isaiah again this week. Heidi's preaching next week, and uh, she may be looking at Nehemiah, maybe not, I don't know. But we're going to be hopping around a little bit and looking at just messages that God spoke to the faithful remnant of God's people. And so today we're in Isaiah 62, if you want to turn your Bibles there. Everybody can turn their Bibles there. Most won't. Some will. So maybe be the somebody. All right, Isaiah 62. You can say that about bringing your Bibles to church too. Uh, we put it on the screen. It's so much easier when I put it on the screen, but it's good to have it in your hand. So uh, Isaiah chapter 62, and we're just going to be reading verses 1 through 7. And it goes like this. I'm reading from the NRSV. Uh, that for Zion's sake, Zion is, is uh, Israel, it's Jerusalem. God's dwelling place. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name and the mouth of the Lord will, that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be crowned with beauty in the hand of the Lord. And a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be turned desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. That's a hard nickname. And your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. For the, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Upon your walls, O Jerusalem, I have posted sentinels all day and all night. Say all day and all night. This is kind of part of my point of my message. There's a lot in this passage, but this is one of my big points right here. All day and all night, they shall never be silent. You who remind the Lord, say remind the Lord. You who remind the Lord, take no rest and give no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes its renowned throughout the earth. This is the word of God for the faithful remnant of God. And your response would be, thanks be to God. So I want to say that again. This is the word of God for the faithful remnant of God. There you go. That's a very liturgical thing to do, but sometimes you have to tell people what's going on, right? Heidi and I went to a Catholic church, and they, they kept doing things like that. They were like, tell you, like, they would sing a song. This is the word of God. And they're like literally holding the Bible over everybody. And we're going, this is the word of God. And we're like, yes, that's a Bible. And then God's word is for us, and he speaks to us through it. So that's what that is for. When we say, this is the word of God for the people of God, our response is to say, thanks, God. <laughs> thanks, God. Thank you for this word. And this word especially, I believe, is something to say thank you for. Because it's a, a prophecy, again from the book of Isaiah, about how God is going to return and rescue his people. And not just, uh, just you know, like pull them up out of the water and dust them off and be like, oh, I'm sorry, you were almost drowning. But hey, okay, go about your life. You know, God is, is rescuing and marrying this people. He is marrying this people. This is, the, if you read Isaiah 61 before it and you read through 62, there's all 
of this marriage language. Like last week we looked at how the, the prophet used the language of God as mother. Like in, your womb, in my womb I formed you. He you know, had all this mothering terminology. Today it's all marriage. It's all marriage. And God's saying, I am going to marry this people. I am going to rescue this people. I am going to clean them up. I am going to dress them in the finest robes. And not only that, when I marry them, their entire circumstance, their entire status in the world is going to change because they're going to go from forsaken, left to drown in the pond, to loved. You're going to go from, from desolate to productive. You're, you're, you're no longer forsaken and left behind, but now God's delight is in you. Like that really hard nickname. I never called my wife a nickname like that. My de- hey, my delight is in you. How's it going? My delight is in you. You know, we don't do that, but God is doing that with this woman that he is going to marry. And this woman is a, is a, a picture of the church. It's a picture of God's people. He is going to marry her. And this is all about this preparation for the wedding. I wanted to share with you a picture this morning. Oh, my wife says, oh, geez. There it is. Is it okay? <laughs> Surprise. This is, uh, this is two really young people who are in love. I, they look vaguely familiar. Uh, from 2-26-2000, uh, tw- 22 years ago in next month, Heidi and I will have been married. And this is our, our wedding day picture. And what I remember about our, our, like, the whole process leading up to it, that, which is what kind of what this is describing here in this passage, is all of the work that goes into putting a wedding together. Now, if you've been married, y- you probably know. Like, we get asked very frequently, this is one of the probably most common questions, like, how long should our engagement be? And generally speaking, my answer is short enough to get the wedding planned and that's about it. Get the thing planned and be done and get married. You know, just like, be, keep it short. Keep it short and simple. Um, but there is a lot that goes into it. We had to pick out, uh, she had to pick out that dress. I had nothing to do with picking out that dress. She did a great job. But they spent hours and hours at the store picking out the dress. And then I had to pick out a tuxedo. And actually, she came and helped pick out the tuxedo um, and picked out the colors. You know, I was like, I kind of like the high button thing. And she's like, okay. And then we, that's where, that was my, my preference in that. And we had to pick out flowers. And then we had to pick out wedding invitations. And we had to pick out colors. And we had to pick out uh, who was going to do the ceremony, who was going to sing, who was going to be in the wedding party. And you know what? We are so popular. We were like, we each made a list of like 40 people and we had to cross people off. And like, it was really intense. And we wound up with this huge wedding party. And then there's the wedding invitations. And then who's going to get a wedding invitation, right? And then those wedding invitations have to go out and they have to have all of this stuff. The best part was going to actually check out the food, right? We're going to have this certain thing afterward. And we got to go taste all the food. That was pretty awesome because we didn't get to eat any of it at our wedding because so many people showed up. And people even showed up early and they'd eaten the food before we got there. It was incredible. Uh, So it was this whole huge party. It was a planned party and all of the details that went into it so that we could stand together for this picture. Yeah, (laughs) All of that, so I mean, all of that goes into this moment, so we can stand together for this picture and then get up in front in front of people and say our vows and, and, and be married. And that's what's going on in this passage, is God is really describing all of the preparation work that's going into blessing and choosing and selecting from all of the people in the whole world, this people, to be his bride. It is a very, very special position that we occupy. 
that God would choose you and me to become one with him and to take on his name. I mean, that's what Heidi and I did. Her name was Castile before we got married. It's a really nice name. It's a really great name. Uh, we should have just taken Castile instead of Pagels. Pagels will get stiff. Teased. Nobody says anything bad about Pagels or uh, Castile, but Pagels turns into bagels and pickles and all kinds of stuff. Nobody says anything about Castile. So we should have taken her name. But God gives us his name, and he says, your name is going to be. I will change your name. Your name shall no longer be desolate. Your name shall no longer be forgotten or forsaken, but it's going to be my delight is in you. It changes everything. The thing about this passage, though, and if you read the passages around it, and if you read through the rest of the prophets, there's a big difference between Heidi in this picture and the woman described in this book. Because the woman described in this book, especially if you look at the book of Hosea, is a prostitute. Is somebody who is utterly and completely unfaithful. Not just unfaithful, but the very picture of the idea of what unfaithfulness could be. Unfaithful to a man, unfaithful to herself, unfaithful to her values, unfaithful to her value. No longer able to be of worth to anybody or anything. Used up, dried up, abused. The sort of person that you might see on the street, and if, if, if you have a good heart, maybe God prompts you to empathy but if you're judgmental, you're probably looking at them with scorn. Just a completely used, utterly what seems like a worthless human being is what's described in the passages in Isaiah and in Hosea. And that that is the woman that God chooses. Chooses to rescue and save. Chooses to give a new name. Chooses to marry. That's what this passage is all about. The hard part is, like our wedding, we got, ma- we got engaged in what was probably, I think it was, I want to say nine months. Is that about right? It's 22 years ago now. You can't expect me to remember. But do you remember? <laughs> Five, six months. You know, it seemed like a really long time, right, from the day that I asked her to marry me to the day of the wedding. It seemed like forever. But the people in this passage, especially Isaiah, he is, he is, he is seeing all this. He's seeing this prophecy. He's seeing this image of, of God rescuing and restoring this people who have been unfaithful, who have turned from him, who are desolate, who are destroyed. And he sees this image of God rescuing them, pulling them back, his people, himself. And he's saying, how long, God, is this engagement going to last? How long should we be engaged before you show up? If Isaiah had his way, he's like, tomorrow we could have a wedding, God, right? Have you ever felt like that? Like God kind of promises something to you or you sense this promise from God to you and you're like, okay, how long, God, is this going to be? When is this going to happen? How long do I have to wait? Or you've been in a really tough circumstance. Things have been really hard around you and you believe that God is faithful and is going to see you through, but you just don't know how long it's going to take to get to the other side of it. And you're just... All right, let's get this over with, God. I'm, I'm ready for this to be done. I'm ready to come through this. I'm ready for you to change my circumstance. And it seems like forever. And that's the position that Isaiah is in. It's like, how long, God? How long is this going to be? How long is this going to take? How long do we have to wait? And waiting is the key of the passage. There is a great deal of waiting. In fact, if you read Isaiah 61, the very beginning of it, there's some words that you'll recognize. 
It says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed and to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and release from the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The reason those are familiar words is because Jesus spoke them when he began his ministry in his hometown. They said, hey, would you read from the Bible? He's like, sure. And he opens it up and this is what he reads to the people. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news. This has been fulfilled in your presence. He's saying, I am the bridegroom, that promised groom that was going to come and rescue this desolate people, this broken people. I am him, and I am here now. It was 400 years of waiting. How long do we have to wait? A very long time sometimes. Have you ever noticed that God just seems to move at a different pace than the rest of us? He just kind of has a different time schedule than all of us, right? We are in the Western society, right? We want things to happen quickly and on time. We want to lay out our projects and say, here is the points along the way. And when it would get to the end of this list of checklists, we will be done and it will be fixed. It will be beautiful. It will be wonderful. If I, if I plan my finances this way, by the time I'm 50, my son was telling me just the other day that the average American 25-year-old has a $500 a month car payment. And he said, you know, Dad, this is my son. Did you know if you invest that, you could have $5 million by the time you're 50? See, this is our thinking, like, right? We, if we plan, we work, we process, and we do it in a certain time frame. It'll all work out, and it'll be perfect. We want it to rush along and to move along at our pace. But God moves at the pace of generations. He moves at the pace of millennia. He is thinking long picture. He's thinking way out there. They're asking, oh, good, the bridegroom's coming. He's going to rescue us. How long? How long? And they get tired and they're waiting. They get tired of, of all the circumstances. They are caving under the pressure. And for them, they could just be like, hey, you know what? It would be so much easier just to become part of Babylon. It'd be so much easier to let go of our Jewish identity. It'd be so much easier just to be a Babylonian, to start a Babylonian business, to raise Babylonian funds, to get a ba Bank of Babylon account. Try saying that. That's really hard. Bank of Babylon banking account. Jeez. You know, they, they have 50,000 reasons just to let go of this promise, to let go of their home, to let go of their identity, and just blend into the rest of the world. But God's inviting them to hang on. When we look around us today, we have all the reasons in the world to let go. We have all the, maybe like science says that God isn't real. We can look at, we can look at the news that, you know, that Christians don't act very Christianly. We can see that people in the church are not much different than the people outside the church. I mean, we can see all of these reasons and this pressure that's coming on us to cave. But God is inviting us to hang on, to hang on. And it reminds me of Abraham. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says about Abraham, who is the father of us all, the first person that God drew out of the nations and built from them a people who became the people of Israel, who became the church, who became you and me, the father of us all. He said this, that Abraham, though he did not see the fulfillment of the promise, he held on and it was counted to him as faithfulness. That Abraham was faithful. He had every reason not to believe. He was an old man when God came to him and promised him a child. 
like so old that biologically speaking, he was not supposed to be able to have a child. And his wife was old too. Old people, I mean really old people. We're talking about not old people like me. Old people like 120 do not have children, right? Betty White lived to 99 years old recently. And everybody's like, oh, she's so amazing. But she was not going to have a child at 99 years old. It just was biologically impossible. And that's the circumstances that Abraham was facing. It was biologically impossible. He had every reason to say, no, God, you're crazy, and to give up. But he held on to the promise. He held on to the promise. The people here are living their day-to-day lives, and they look around and they say, look, there's all these reasons. It's in shambles. It's ugly. The leaders have fallen. All of our, all of our kings have turned against us. They have, they've, you know, we thought that they were really great men of God, and they turned, they've been stealing money. They've been sleeping with the secretary. They've been doing this and that. They've just made this mess of this whole kingdom, and now it's all destroyed, and Babylon is ruling us. We have every reason to let go and to say, no, God's not going to come through for these people. God's not going to come through for us. But in their everyday, ordinary lives, God speaks and says, hold on. Isaiah says, hold on. The revelation of God through Scripture, consistent from day one, is a God whose plans are never, ever frustrated. Who nevers, whose authority is always absolute and whose plans always come to pass. Never once has God been frustrated. Can you imagine that? Like, I get frustrated just trying to open Christmas presents sometimes. Like, but God is never frustrated by anything. Everything that he has purposed to do happens. It may take way longer than we think is a good idea, but it happens. God makes it come to pass in the fullness of time. And because this is the God of Scripture that we serve and follow, because this is the God who speaks to us week after week after week, we, the people of God, do not panic. We don't run in fear, but we stand firm and we hold the faith. The slow work of God. It's one of my favorite prayers. Trust in the slow work of God. Um, okay, so maybe I should say that's not one of my favorite prayers. Because it is one of my favorite prayers because it comes up at the most important moments, which is just about every day, frankly. Just about every day I get to a point in my day where I have to go, okay, trust in the slow work of God. On my good days I do that. On the bad days I go, it's all falling apart. And then I come, you know, my soul says, okay, Jamie, trust in the slow work of God. And I go, I hate that prayer. Come on, God, can't we go with the trust in the fast work of God? Can't we trust in the quick and speedy work of God? <laughs> Can't we, you know, like the psalmist, come to me speedily. That's what David said. God, come to me and rescue me speedily. Like we want, we want uh, Mr. McFeely from Mr. Rogers to show up on his bicycle bringing our salvation, speedy delivery. And yet God is like, no, trust in my slow, slow work. Don't rush ahead of my timing. Don't. Put into action plans that are not mine. Don't try to make things happen that are, are not in my timing or in my plan. 
God has his own timing, and he calls it the fullness of time. When every factor, when everything is just right, when every moment has come together, and when he acts, it affects all of history and all of time in ways that we can't get our brain around. We talk, when we talk about war, we talk about unintended consequences, right? We drop a bomb, and there's unintended consequences, things that we couldn't imagine would happen. God doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have the problem of unintended consequences because he sees so perfectly that he waits till the fullness of time so that every consequence was fully intended. That is the goodness of our God. And that's why Jesus waits 400 years to show up. And then he does this ministry, and then he says, I'm going away, but I'm going to come again. That Where I am, you may be also, so that I can return and bring you with me. And now we, the church, wait and wait and longing expectation for him to come. And in the midst of it, we trust the slow work of God. Why do we have to wait? <laughs> Why would God do this to us? That's kind of the feeling, right? Why would God do this to us? And it's not that he's doing something to us, but he is building something in us. Romans 5 says that the pathway through the pressure of the culture, the pathway through the pain of what we experience in this life is waiting and perseverance. Because that waiting and perseverance, in it, it produces in us character. And that character produces in us maturity. That means you get to grow up. Congratulations, you get to grow up. And you get to become the mature person of God that you always hoped you would be. And that maturity and that character produces in us hope. So God doesn't just come along and say, oh, it's going to be a wedding. Here's your wedding dress. Although he does say that in Isaiah 61 toward the end, he says, I'm dressing you in the clothes of salvation and I'm putting on you a robe of faithfulness. It says righteousness, but the word righteousness there is toward him. So the better translation would be faithfulness. He's putting on us a robe of faithfulness. And in that, God literally gives us the grace to hang on when it seems like everything's coming apart. He literally gives us the power, the robe of faithfulness. He puts on her, puts on her robe, her, her, her purple sweater, right? And the purple sweater of peace. And is that, that's what it was. I'm, my brain just blanked. It was peace, right? Yeah, she's like, I think so. <laughs> Apparently doesn't wear it very often. Um, the purple sweater of peace. She puts this, and it, you know, it's this physical reminder. God puts this physical robe on us of faithfulness in 61.10 so that we can be faithful. He gives us the power to return his favor because God is faithful to us. He gives us the power to be faithful to him. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? It's like, so when you think, oh, I got to hang on, I got to hang on, I'm like holding on by the, just like my fingernails. And God's like, no, I, I gave you a robe of faithfulness. That's all you need. I gave you the robe of faithfulness. You don't have to try so hard gave you the robe of faithfulness. I empowered you to remain in the midst of all the pressure. I empowered you to hold on to me in the midst of all the chaos. When everything seems like it's coming apart, I gave you the power to be faithful, faithful, faithful. What good news. What good news. So what are we supposed to do while we're wearing this faithfulness robe and while we're waiting? We live our lives. We live. We live expectantly. But then Isaiah gives us a very specific task, 
a very, very specific task. And um, I wrestled with this over and over again. I told Heidi I probably wrote this five or six times this week. I was even rewriting it again last night because it kept just coming a different way. And I came up against this thing. The reason that I kept having to rewrite this is because the thing that this passage is calling us to is something I feel very bad at. I'm a, I'm a pastor, and I'm up here telling you this. I feel horrible at this. I feel like uh, there are people that are gifted for it, and it is not me. Uh, it's a task that I feel like that I'm just a beginner at, and that is prayer. It's reminding God. It's reminding God. It's, did you catch what he said here? In the very beginning of it, he says, for Z- this is Isaiah speaking. It's not God speaking. It's Isaiah speaking. He says, for Zion's sake, I would say for the church's sake, for your sake, I will not keep silent. You're like, sometimes you just wish I'd shut up. But it, he says here, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn. And then he, he uh, bookends it, you know, like books that hold up the middle, those little metal brackets that hold up the books in the middle. He brackets it at the end and says this on, in verse 6. Upon your walls, O Jerusalem, I have posted sentinels all day and all night, and they shall never be silent. They shall never be silent. You, and he's now he's speaking to those people that shall never be silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest. That's like exactly the opposite of what we teach you guys all the time, right? We want you to Sabbath. We want you to like live within your boundaries and stuff. And Isaiah's like, okay, boundaries, be gone. Like we're done. No Sabbath, no rest. We're staying at our post. We're staying on the walls all night, and we're never going to be silent. And you know what? This is going to be so intense. Not only are we not going to take any rest, but we're not going to give God any rest. I am going to be up in his grill 24-7 until he keeps his promise. Yikes. Back to marriage. When you get married, you find that you're human, right? And I have found uh, more than Heidi. uh, How do I say this? I have found that I am human. I just stick with that. I'll just, I can't, I can't, I can't figure out how to say it. I was going to just say she's less human than I am, but like I was trying to say she's better, but it wasn't coming out right. So anyway, I, I am just so human. I am, I, I f- I'm forgetful, right? I forget all the time. I forget, like nowadays, I don't know, I, we had COVID last year and I, my memory's kind of been wonky since COVID. And, and I don't know if that's just a really good excuse or if I'm getting old, but I, I forget people's names and I'm talking, you've probably had it happen to you. Like I, I know I've done it to Kathy. I know, I know I've done it to Casey. I, you know, I'm, I'm standing there talking to you, people that I have known for 13 years, and then I'm like, hi, you. This, this memory is just, whoop, you know, gone. I, like, struggle with my memory. But, you know, that's now. But when I was 25, like I was in that picture, I would also forget things. Like, you know, that dirty underwear don't belong on the floor next to the bed. They belong in the dirty clothes basket. I would forget things like, well, maybe you shouldn't drink out of a milk carton. I don't know. And my lovely wife, you know what she would do? She would remind me, hey, remember you were going to do this. So do you know what you call it? This is, this is something that she did very, very short period of time. And I think I did it for a very short period of time because we talked about it. And we said, let's not do this. When you remind somebody over and 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 over again, you know what that's called? Nagging. You know what else it's called? Really irritating, right? We decided early on, you remember, we like, we don't, let's, let's not nag each other. Let's, I don't want to be in a, let's just take responsibility for ourselves and, and then not nag each other. But that's what's really being described here in the text. Isaiah is saying, okay, people, 
people of God, faithful remnant, people that, that have been posted to watch for God, to see what God is doing, it's time for you to get really irritating and start nagging God. Nag, this is before the wedding. Like, you know, traditionally we say that nagging happens after the wedding, but this is before the wedding. The nagging begins now. We nag God. And it's not because God is forgetful, which is a strange thing. I am, again, I am extremely forgetful. I forget all sorts of things. My mother used to say of me when I was a child, you would forget your head if it wasn't screwed on. And I go on what, looking for screws because I was like, what? You know, you would forget. I just forget everything. But God isn't that way. God has never once forgotten anything that God was supposed to remember. Never once. Psalm 8 says this. It's like, he says, you have never, ever forgotten a person that seeks you. You've never forgotten it. It's in the scripture. God doesn't lose people between the cracks. It just doesn't happen. He doesn't forget something on his schedule. He doesn't, he doesn't forget to make the sun come up today. He doesn't forget to make the moon rise. He doesn't forget to make the water fall upon the earth. He doesn't forget to hold the atoms that make up your body together. Thank goodness, because that would be really disturbing if we all just suddenly dissolved, right? God has never, ever forgotten any of these things. So this text seems really shocking when it's saying we need to start nagging God about this. While you're at your post, while you're living your life, while you're following God's call, we are to remind God of what he promised. And we're to stay at it until we see it happen. We're not to rest, and we're not to give God any rest. And that's why I feel so really bad about this. Because, like I said, I'm forgetful. I forget, I forget to remind myself to do things, much less to forget to remind God of his promises. And really, what is the point of this? Why would we need to remind God who doesn't forget? I mean, is it for his sake? Is he really like, until you remind me, I'm not doing it? That would be weird, right? Until you make me remember, I'm not going to remember that I was going to rescue you. I think the reasons that God asks us to remind him are, there's a few of them, and I'll just kind of go quickly. Again, that God moves at a different pace than we do. And us reminding God really teaches us to move at his pace. It forces us to, to just sit and wait for God to, to do things in his timing. It teaches us trust. I mean, we like the idea of slow food, right? That was like this whole movement, slow food. We go and we'll sit for hours over this meal. And that's a really beautiful idea when you're tasting your food and you're savoring things. But if you showed up really hungry, it's going to be really irritating, right? Because you don't want to be patient because you're hungry. I want to eat now. And that's the invitation here is that God is inviting us to wait patiently and to ask. Because asking is the rule of the kingdom, Asking is what we are called to do over and over again. And it makes me think of the kids in the back of the car as we're driving across the state, right, to go from here to Seattle. And Amelia, are we there yet, Dad? I'm like, we're not even in Colfax, child. How many times have you driven this road? I mean, we four or five times a year, easy, and she's 10 years old, so you do the math. That's like somewhere from 50 times you've driven this road, and you're asking me, are we there yet? And it's Colfax. It's irritating. It's irritating before it's even said, but this is what we're called to do. 
God is in the front seat of the car, though, and he knows that we can't see all that he can see. And God is infinitely patient. And so our command to ask for him to do what he has said he was going to do actually invites us into agency. It's a really fancy word. I like using it. I don't get to use it very often. We've been given agency, which means we've been given power. We've been given participation in God's work. It's not a passive role. We're not sitting in the backseat of the cart just waiting. We're sitting in the backseat of the cart. God, when are you going to do that? God, when is this going to happen? God, when are you going to rescue the people? When are you going to come back? When are you going to restore your church? When are you going to make the faithful remnant shine like the stars in the sky? When are we going to see the whole world come to know the glory of God and the vindication of the church who has been faithful all along happen because you showed up? When are we going to see this? We have a part to play in God's slow work. It's prayer. I think God invites us to remind him because he knows that we need reminding more than he does. Let's just be honest. <laughs> how, many, uh, how many times have you needed to be reminded of God's promises to you? Uh, there was this, this thing in the church for a while where people would say, I'm standing on every promise of God. Good. Good for you. I don't even know what that means. Which promises of God are you standing on? That's what they, I, you get asked that by people. What promises has God spoken to you that you're standing on? I'm like, I don't even... Like, does that mean, like, put the Bible on the ground and stand on it? I don't understand what you're even saying. It's like some weird Christian code. Heidi likes this, has this phrase she uses. Like, That's very Christian of you. And so very churchy of you. And uh, so that's kind of what it felt like. But as I was reading this, I was really like, oh, you know what? All around us is really a sinking sandy hills. We went to the Oregon Dunes recently and had to climb up one of those hills. And it felt like every step forward was like three steps back. And you had to kind of run to try to keep ahead of it. That's what life can feel like. It's sinking sand. It's, it's ground that is not solid. The wind is blowing it every which direction. And we need a solid place to stand. And we need to remember what that solid place is. And that's God's word to us, his promises. Every promise will be fulfilled. It's solid ground in the shifting sand. And so I can say, hopefully not very churchy in a very churchy way, I want to stand on every promise of God, but I often just don't remember what they are. Because I'm busy doing my task list. I'm busy going about life, doing my things. I'm busy listening to the news. I'm busy trying to figure out how to vote. I'm busy trying to figure out what's best for the world or how to help people or how to love my neighbor or really how to love my wife. There's so many things to do that I forget. And so God says, Isaiah says, stand on the wall and remind God of what he's going to do, not just so God doesn't forget, but so that you don't. And I also think that we are asked to ask God because the asking, above all, changes us. It puts our world in the right order. It reminds us that there is a God and it's not me. You know, I recently read that in a book. I found out, like, all these years I thought this was me. It was, like, my great statement, like, Pastor Jamie used to say, there is a God and it's not me. That was his thing. And like, I've been to this church for all these years, and that's the one thing I got from him. And I read in a book, I'm like, dang it, it's not me. It's not original. But this is what prayer does for us. This is what nagging God about his promises does for us. It puts our world in the right order because it's an admission that we can't make it happen. I can't make God's promises happen. I can try, I can work, I can, you know, and that's our, we want to do it. We're going to jive in, we're going to work, we're going to make it happen. But I can't. I don't have the power. I don't have the authority. 
I don't have the miracle power. I don't even have the longevity that God has to stick with this and make every promise come true, but he does. There is a God, and it is not me. It puts my world in order, and I learn to trust. I learn patience. I learn delayed gratification. I learn to care for others and their needs, to see beyond my own needs, and to help take care of them. I learn to lean on God in faith when I can't see my way through. So much is learned. We are so formed by the simple act of standing on the wall and reminding God of his promises of praying. And lastly, I think God asks us to do this because it's his way of getting us to deal with him. It's like a bid for a relationship. If God were the, the cosmic candy machine that we treat him as, we'd say our prayer and out would come the little treat in the bottom and we would get what we want. We would never have to really deal with God, right? Other than to put the quarters in the machine. That's all prayer would be for us. But God wants relationship. God wants something more for us. We would be overly satisfied if we just got everything that we sought in every moment and in every, every way, and it would never be perfect. And yet God invites us, pursue me, seek me. Seek me and you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. It's the one silver bullet for finding God, right? It's the only one we've got. Seek God, pray, be on the wall. Don't let God have rest. Take no rest yourself until you've heard from him. We wrestle with this thing so that we have to wrestle with his character, with his nature, with his goodness, with his faithfulness, and we seek his face. God is inviting us to deal with him. It's a bid for connection, and it seems backward to us. But connection is what God's after. He wants us to want him. And he wants us above all things. Not just his promises to come true, but he wants you. Not for the good things that he gives, but he wants you to want him for who he is. Seek me, and you will find me. If you seek me, with all of your heart. As I said, this passage has a ton of stuff in it. I mean, I, I mean I, there's more on the cutting room floor than I could possibly have time to deal with. There's just tons of things in here. But I think the two big things that God is speaking to us is that God always keeps his promises and an invitation for us, his faithful remnant, to nag him with those promises, to be in his face continually, day and night, to be praying and when I say that, I realize that is not something that I would be very good at doing, praying day and night, waiting for God's promises. You know, practically speaking, spending that much time on my knees, I, I, my knees would hurt, and I'd get hungry, and there would be other things I needed to do, and the sermon next week wouldn't happen, and, you know, all of the things that God has called me to wouldn't happen if I just did this constantly day and night, kind of like this seems to say. But I realize that this is not written to an, invitation, uh, to an inv individual. Isaiah is not saying to one person on the wall to do this. He is saying, people of God, all of you who have been posted on the wall, to watch for what God is doing in the world together, don't give God rest. Keep after his promises. So my closing question for you is what part, what what. Uh, What's the word? Um, what shift should you take? How should you, how should I? And that's why I got to the end of it. I was even sitting back in the back with, with Anna getting the PowerPoint ready this morning. I'm like, I just don't have this last thing crafted yet. <laughs> I don't have it yet because I realize I don't have it for myself. How am I going to participate in this call 
to stand on God's promises and to call God to fulfill them on behalf of the church. And how will you? So that's my invitation this morning. Is it really what's God's invitation to you in this? You personally, is it, a, is it you know, some people would come up with a, like a John 10.10 moment. So at 10.10 every day, I'm going to pray. Or you, you find a time, you're, you're going to put it into your, your daily devotional time or your quiet time, the first thing you're going to do. Or maybe at dinner, I read of a story of a, of a guy who at their dinner table, every night they prayed a prayer from the book of Lamentations for people who are refugees who are, who are lost and, and had no way of making it in life, and who were, you know, they were just praying for refugees, and they're like, we have all this food on the table, so we're going to pray or lament for these refugees. What has God given you to pray? What promises are you responsible for? Does that make sense? So I'm going to give us a minute, and, and you, know, you may not come up with it in this minute. Heidi, I know, is going to ask me later this afternoon. I'm going to say, I don't know yet. Give me some time. Um, but let's let the Holy Spirit speak, and then we'll close with the doxology. Let's take a minute of silence. stand together. One thing I think we need to say is because we are a community, we are relying on one another to take a shift. We need each other to take a shift before God, that we trust each other to do that. We're going to sing the doxology, and uh, I know some of you are like, why do we do that every week? When you think about the world we live in right now, this song is an act of rebellion, Okay. In our world, we think that every blessing, every good thing that comes into our life comes because of our work. We, we think that the creatures here on earth, they just kind of got their own thing going and they have nothing to do with God. But this song says exactly the opposite. We are invited to rebel against the world and to declare that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And I sing it at the end of every service, going into our week to remember, right? We're forgetful, but we're going to go in and remember. So let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in the grace of our Lord to stand on his promises this week, knowing that he has clothed you in faithfulness and you have the power to do it, and that Jesus loves you, and Heidi and I do too. We'll see you next week.